Well, if you have a, uh, a Bible there in front of you, if you want to turn to Psalm 38, that's our sermon text today, Psalm 38. Every first Sunday of the month we go through the Psalms in order, and we are up to the 38th Psalm, a Psalm of, of David here today. And I'll ask that if you're able to do so, uh, if you're able to do so, please stand for the reading of God's Word today. Give ear to the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative Word. Psalm 38, a psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good, accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, the psalm we just read, Psalm 38, it's a, it's a lament of sorts. It's what's called often a penitential psalm, a psalm, of, a psalm of penitence. It's a psalm involving heartfelt confession of sin. Um, there are other, a number of other psalms that, that fit that description. Even Psalms of David, some of David's best-known psalms and best-loved psalms are these kinds of, of psalms. Psalm 32, we looked at that a little while back. Psalm 51. Uh, as well as as others. Um, In our study through the Psalms, you might not know that the the book of Psalms uh, is, by many, many people, is divided up into five books. You know that Moses, the first five books of your Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are the five books of Moses, are the five books of the law. And in many many ways, the, the Psalter, the Psalms, is also divided up into what people consider to be five Books, And we are almost at the end of what's considered the first book, which is Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. And the, the first book of, of the Psalter closes with a group of psalms 
that are very closely tied together, not just because they're in sequence, but the themes, the, 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 the content of these psalms are very tightly related to one another. Psalms 38 through 41 share many of the same words and phrases and themes, and chief among them being the confession and forgiveness of sin. Well, Psalm 38, as you just heard, as I read it to you and as you were following along, is, is in a lot of ways it's a difficult psalm. In a lot of ways it's a difficult psalm. It deals with unpleasant subjects, doesn't it? It deals with sin, it deals with suffering, it deals with the discipline of the Lord, uh, all of which are tied together, at least in this psalm. And you know, most of us tend to want to avoid these kinds of subjects. Uh, we, we often like to pretend that such things have no place in our Christian life and experience or that they're out of the ordinary or, or that they're out of, out of place. Psalms like this one don't fit very easily with what you might consider bumper sticker theology. You know, really short, pithy, happy phrases that you can slap on the back of your car. You know, where everything is oversimplified and, and easy. You probably won't ever hear a contemporary Christian pop song or a worship song, for that matter, based upon this psalm on the radio anytime soon. You know, Psalm 38 is not exactly, to use the tagline of one of our prominent Christian music stations, it's not exactly positive and encouraging. You probably won't hear it again anytime soon on that, on that station. Uh, and this psalm of David, if you, as you followed along through it, or maybe you've read it before, if you, know, you might notice it doesn't, it doesn't wrap things up all neat and tidy, does it? It doesn't wrap things up all quickly and neat and tidy. It doesn't leave us uh, with David's sin and suffering under the heavy hand of God all neatly resolved at the end. That's the way we would have written it. That's the way we would prefer it to be, to be done. It's not like the television sitcoms or the dramas that we might watch that we're used to watching, where every problem or difficulty is resolved in the span of 30 or 60 minutes, neatly and easily, and everything's all back to normal and happily ever after, of course, minus the commercials. Yeah, and that's because real life doesn't work that way, does it? You know, when we watch a movie, I won't mention names or anything, but sometimes you, you watch a movie and, you know, th those who consider themselves a little bit more, art, a little more artist-like uh, than other movie makers... Sometimes they make a movie with a bad ending, an unhappy ending. I get mad at those. I want my money back when I watch those. I want my two hours or whatever back when I watch those because I don't like that. If I want that, I'll just look out my front door. I'll look in the mirror. You know, I'll look at our own situations that we know about. We don't go to the movie for that. We, we want to see happy endings. We want to see perfect endings. Everything's happy and, and resolved, but real life doesn't often work that way. Your experience and mine as believers in Christ isn't always neat and tidy, is it? We don't like to admit that sometimes, but it's not. Our sins and our sufferings aren't always quickly or easily resolved, are they? If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I think you'll understand exactly what we're saying there. That's just not how the Christian life works. And here David confesses his sin to the Lord, even as he sees the hand of God in his sufferings, as a chastisement for his sin. And he pleads with the Lord not to rebuke him in his anger or discipline him in his wrath. And you and I, we, you know, if you look at the introduction there, the, 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 uh, the script above the, the text, where it says a psalm of David for the memorial offering or a psalm, a psalm of remembrance, maybe your translation uh, puts it. 
It doesn't tell us much, does it? It doesn't tell us you know, what was happening. What, was, what were David's circumstances? What, what was he suffering? What was his sin? You know, we might like to know those things. Sometimes he does tell us those things. This particular time in this, this psalm, it doesn't really tell us. We don't know, you know, what it is he's pleading about with the Lord not to rebuke him in anger. We, we don't know his circumstance. We don't know his affliction or his sins. And as is often the case with the Psalms in particular, it's probably best that you and I don't know the specifics of his case. Why? You know, sometimes if you know the specifics, you tend to, to write yourself out of it. You say, well, that, I can't identify with that. I, didn't, I don't know anybody that's like Uriah. I didn't have someone like Uriah killed. I didn't do what David did in that particular sin. Or I didn't, I didn't you know, David numbered Israel and God chastised him for that. As we've seen on a previous Sunday. He wrote a psalm about that. Tells us about that. This one he doesn't do that. And so what, what we're free to do, I believe, here with this psalm, because of, I don't want to call it generic, but the non-specific nature of his sufferings and of his sin we're more able easily to apply it to ourselves. We can identify with David. For who among us hasn't sinned? Who among us hasn't prayed or thought something like this in prayer to the Lord about our sufferings and chastisement? You know, if we, if we think the way it's written with us without, this, without giving much information about the specifics, we're able to more fit it to our own condition in time of affliction and sin. And discipline. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, writes of this psalm. He says, In singing this psalm, we ought to be much affected with the, with the malignity of sin. And if we have not such troubles as are here described, we know not how soon we may have, and therefore must sing them by way of preparation, as we know that others may have them, and therefore we must sing of them by way of sympathy. You know, in other words, you know, as a pastor, my job is, is going through the Psalms and preaching. My job wasn't to come all the way to Psalm 38 and say, you know, this doesn't apply to me or anybody I know right now, so let's skip it. You know, let's, let's skip it, and then if we need it, we'll use it. You know, if, if the things hit the fan, then I'll pull it out and we'll use it, and we'll talk about our suffering and our sin. What, what does Matthew Henry wisely counsel us to do? He says, no, don't, don't wait. Sing it now. Store it up. It's like getting an immunization. Not, not that you're immune from, from suffering and sin, but, but be ready for it because you know not when that hour may come if it hasn't come already. And on top of that, we all know some people who are suffering this very way even now in some way. And we can use it. We can sing it in such a way as to be sympathetic and show sympathy to them. So if you're here this morning, if you're suffering somehow under the chastisement of the Lord for your sin, maybe no one else knows. Maybe no one else here knows what you're going through. But I hope you will find this psalm to be a balm for your heart and soul even this morning. If that's mercifully not your present condition, if, if things are going well, praise God, thank God for it. But store this psalm up in your heart for future use by way of preparation to use Matthew Henry's phrase and if you know someone else who is suffering this way, and you probably do, apply this psalm even now as a way of showing sympathy for them in their suffering under the hand of God's chastisement at present. Well, the first thing we see in this psalm might be something you weren't expecting to read in the scripture. 
this morning, and that's the anger of the Lord. Maybe you weren't expecting me to preach about the anger of the Lord, but right out of the box, David, in this psalm, kind of explodes some of our preconceived and poorly conceived and unbiblical notions about God and our experience of Him in the Christian life. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. That's a pretty graphic description. And, and notice whose arrows these are. He's not even, you know, we like to, to kind of excuse God from everything and say, well, he allowed this to happen, he allowed that to happen. No, God, God is sovereign over all things. And David says, you know, whatever, whatever the situation may have been, whether it be his enemies, whether it be physical health and sickness and things, he says, your arrows, your arrows have sunk into me. They're not just missing me by a few inches. I'm not just hearing them fly by my ear. They've hit and they've sunk in. He's been struck. He says that God's Yahweh's hand has come down upon him. He mentions God rebuking him, and he says, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. That's a pretty strong word. The, the King James uh, says hot displeasure instead of wrath there. Does, does God get angry with his redeemed people? If we were to have a quiz, I'm guessing many of us would say, well, of course not. Does God get angry with his people? No, no. Heavens, no. Of course not. Does he get angry with his people when we sin? We might say no, but Psalm 38 and many other texts of Scripture would prove us wrong, wouldn't it? Let's not, be more, let's not try to be wiser than God. Let's not try to be more biblical than the Bible. Let's get our, our understanding of things from God's revelation in Scripture. And David, you know, David here is not, he's not saying to the Lord, don't discipline me. That might be a way you might misread it. He's not saying don't, don't rebuke me and don't discipline me. He's saying don't rebuke me uh, in, in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. He knows, David knows. We don't know what his sin was, but David did. David knew that he rightly deserved the discipline and rebuke from the hand of God that he was receiving. But he didn't want to receive them in God's anger. He didn't want to receive them in God's wrath or hot displeasure. You know, and as the rest of the psalm, I think, makes clear, David must have felt in writing this psalm as if somehow God was angry with him, and rightly so. I remember in verse 2 again, it's the Lord's arrows that have sunk into him, and it's God's hand that was heavy upon him, like he said back in Psalm 32. Now, before we go on, you have to remember nothing... If you're a believer, nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 35-39 basically says it twice in the span of that passage. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, nothing can make God, your heavenly Father in Christ, not love you anymore. But we have to remember that God's love is not incompatible in some sense with anger at times. It's not incompatible with anger. When you're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, all, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are fully and freely forgiven. Not part way. God doesn't hide a few behind his back. You are fully forgiven. The price has been paid. It is finished. 
And your persons, you, are accepted as, as sinful as you are. If you're in Christ, you are accepted as perfectly righteous in God's sight. Not for your own righteousness, because we don't have any. You are accepted as perfectly righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's what Shorter Catechism, question 33, reminds us of. So you are fully and freely forgiven and justified, accepted by a holy God as righteous in his sight. But while our Heavenly Father freely forgives us and accepts us as righteous in his sight in Jesus Christ by faith, that does not mean in any way that he is somehow blind to or indifferent to our ongoing sins. There's a big difference between those two things. And I think we're going to see how, what, how they are related to one another. The Lord's Prayer alone, we just prayed this morning, the Lord's Prayer alone should be enough to teach us that. In that prayer, what are we taught to pray? Jesus there teaches us that even though we're justified by faith in Him and all of your sins are forgiven past, present, and future, that because we've come to Him by faith, we still have an ongoing need to ask for forgiveness. We still pray and keep praying Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Does that mean that your justification is somehow incomplete? No. But we still need to ask in an ongoing way for the forgiveness and cleansing of our sins that our communion with the Father might be kept going and kept up, kept up in a way that's pleasing in His, in his sight. This psalm teaches us that there is a sense... We have to be careful how we describe it, but there's a sense in which the sins of believers actually anger God. Now, this is not the anger or wrath, although that word is used in the text. It's not the same kind of anger or wrath that leads to judgment, to condemnation, to an eternity in hell, such as Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's not that kind of, of angry if you're a believer. Rather, this is what theologians have often referred to as the fatherly displeasure of God, the fatherly displeasure of God. Matthew Henry writes the following. He says, Nothing will disquiet the heart of a good man so much as the sense of God's anger, which shows what a fearful thing it is to fall into his hands. The way to keep the heart quiet is to keep ourselves in the love of God and to do nothing to offend him. Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you're still in your sins, this kind of a psalm should trouble you, if you understand it correctly. If God is not indifferent to the sins of his children, those whom he has justified and adopted in Christ, what will become of you if you continue to reject Christ? The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 17-18, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, he quotes the Proverbs here, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, God takes the sins of his children very seriously. He doesn't condemn us for them, but he takes them very seriously. And if that's the case, what will be the, the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel, the good news of, of God? If you don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, come to him by faith today. Confess your sins to God and ask him for forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ even today. Well, the next thing that we see in this psalm is the sin and the suffering 
of David, the sin and the suffering of David. These two things are so closely related in this psalm, it's kind of hard to distinguish in some sense one from the other. They really can't be separated. I'll read just part of it, verses 3 through 8. There's more than that in the psalm, but in verses 3 through 8, listen to David's description of his sin and his suffering. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds, they stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Now, many, many commentators believe that, it, that it, when he wrote this psalm or what he was writing this psalm about, that David was suffering from some kind of disease. He, he mentions a plague, doesn't he? His, his, his close relatives and things, his kinsmen, stayed away from him because of his plague. They, it's like they were, they were worried they were going to catch something from him. That's the description that, that, he, that he gives. Now, um, I don't want to, it's always a scary thing as a preacher and a, a scholar to, to step aside out of, out of the, the track that all the commentators seem to be in. I'm, I'm not convinced that David is actually describing a literal illness here. He may be. David was, was a man just like us. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't uh, exempt from illness, from serious illness uh, in any way, shape, or form, but I'm not so sure David is really describing an actual illness here. I think he's describing his disquiet of heart because of his sin and his conscience over his sin uh, in terms of that sound very much like a disease. You know, real heartfelt conviction of sin does have effects on our bodies, doesn't it? If you've ever really been convicted of your sin, not in a casual way like we often are, if your sin has really hit home, uh, it, it affects everything. It's hard to just go about your day, isn't it? You, it's, it's, you know, we talk about psychosomatic illnesses. Well, this is beyond that. This is, it affects everything. His flesh, his bones. What does he say there in the text in verses 3 to 8? His flesh, his bones. It's a heavy burden. He calls them wounds. Uh, his sides burning. There's no soundness in his flesh. He's feeble and, and crushed. You know, he feels the effects of his sin down in his bones. Verse 3, he speaks of his iniquities as a flood rising over his head. It's like a picture of a man drowning. It, it brings to mind, for me, it brings to mind Jonah. It, it, the water's going over his head. That, it's not water, it's his sins. He's a drowning man, that, and the sea he's drowning in is the sea of his own iniquity. His sin is a crushing burden, which was too heavy for him to bear. Verse 4. He speaks of his sins as a festering or rotting wounds in verse 5. That word wounds is the same word that in the King James uh, is, is uh, translated as stripes in Isaiah 53, 5. By his stripes we are healed. It's a wound maybe from a whip. That, that's kind of the picture that stripes gives. He's got open wounds. It's, it's, it's like the, the idea of a disease doesn't do it enough. It doesn't say enough. He's... He's reaching for descriptive terms to describe his, his suffering. It's like a flood. It's like a disease. It's like a plague. It's like, it's like being whipped. It's like a heavy load he can't bear. It's all of that. All of that. It's not so much his circumstances or even his sufferings that David was chiefly concerned about here in the psalm. 
but his sin that lies at the root of all of it. It's his sin that was his chief concern. This Psalm 38 is the prayer of a true child of God. Only a believer prays like this. Only a believer prays about your sin this way. An unbeliever, someone who's outside of Christ, they may be upset about their circumstances. They may be upset about the consequences of their sins, but they're not upset about their sins. The longer you are a believer in Christ, the more you grow in, in God's grace, the more you will be less, less concerned with your circumstances, not that they aren't a problem, and more concerned with your sin. Your chief and main griefs will be your sins more than your circumstances. Charles Spurgeon writes the following. He says, It is well not so much to bewail our sorrows as to denounce the sins which lie at the root of them. It's not so well. It's well not so much to bewail our sorrows as to denounce the sins which lie at the root of them. Again, it's a mark of growth and maturity and grace in the Christian life to be more disturbed by our sins than our sufferings. Now, the longer that you're a Christian, some of you have been a Christian, a believer in Christ for your whole life, for decades and decades, and I believe that, that based on that experience, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. One of the things that's going to make heaven heaven is you will no longer sin. And the older you get in the faith, the more that is, a, is something you can't wait to see. Well, the last thing in the psalm we're going to see is the discipline of the Lord. Discipline of the Lord. It's precisely because of God's unfailing love for us as his adopted children in Christ that he will not allow you to go on and on in sin, but he will chastise and discipline us. That's, that's the scriptural witness from beginning to end. Not all of our suffering is the direct chastisement of the Lord on account of a particular sin. And you'll notice this psalm, you know, we are to take this psalm and apply it to other people. Our job, so to speak, isn't to say, I know someone who's suffering, you know, therefore they must have done something wrong. You know, Jesus, you know, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What did Jesus say? Oh, you're right. Good. You're, you catch on. It was, it was his dad. You know, his dad, his dad. I mean, the Bible does talk about God visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children, doesn't it? But Jesus says, no, this, this isn't that. He was, he was born blind, suffered for years and years that the works of God might be performed in him, that, that the glory of God might shine through in his healing. Not all of our suffering is a result directly of, of sin or chastisement. Sometimes, though, it is. And I, I will say this uh, with little fear of, of contradiction. If that's the case with you, you will know. You will know. You will know if God is chastising you for something. You know if you're harboring sin, a particular sin, in your heart, and God is dealing with you roughly because of it. God isn't playing blind man's bluff. He's not playing Marco Polo. He's not saying, it's over here, you're a little warmer now. He doesn't play games with his kids that way. He cares about us more than to do that. But David in Psalm 38 here speaks of God's discipline. He knew God was chastising him for something. We don't know what that something was, and it's probably not important that we would know exactly what it was. You know, think about that. David, twice in the scripture, is referred to as the man after God's own heart, isn't he? Both in the Old and New Testaments tell us that. 
It's the man after God's own heart. And yet David here tells us that he experienced the chastisement of God as a result of his sin. That's pretty remarkable, but it's also pretty comforting, I hope, for each one of of us here today. So let us learn from David that we might, as the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it, lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees and make straight paths for our feet. In Christ, our Heavenly Father loves you so much that he will see to it that his adopted children will share in his holiness. That's not a negative, that's a positive. It's a blessing. It's because he loves you too much to leave you in your sins and in my sins that he does that. Psalm 99, our call to worship this morning. Three times, if you were listening, three times that psalm mentions the holiness of God. It extols the holiness of God. Remember twice, holy is he. Worship him because he's holy. It says three times. It's kind of the psalms version of Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. You know, but it also speaks of the goodness of God in answering the prayers of his people. It, it singles out Moses and Aaron and Samuel, that God was good to them and answered them when they called upon him. But in verse 8 it says something that, that probably sounds kind of strange to your ears and mine. Psalm 99 verse 8 it says, O Lord our God, you answered them, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, you answered them, you were a forgiving God to them, But it goes on, it says, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. That sounds contradictory, doesn't it, to our ears? Well, if he forgave them, why was he an avenger of their wrongdoings? Why did he chastise them, basically, for their wrongdoings? I don't know off the top of my head what Samuel did, uh, but Moses, what happened to Moses? He was forgiven. He is in heaven. He is redeemed. Uh, But what happened when he struck that rock a second time? He was chastised. Did Moses get to go into the promised land? No. Now, he he was forgiven. He's in heaven. God didn't, didn't cast him aside. But he chastised him. Seriously chastised him. He let Moses see it from afar. And then took him home. Took him home to the real promised land. But he chastised him. He avenged his wrongdoings. The Lord chastised or disciplined them. You know, I don't know if you read your Old Testament much. I hope that you read both. But it should be impossible to read the history of of God's people in the Old Testament, whether that be Moses, Aaron, Samuel, or even David who wrote this song. It should be impossible to read those parts of your Bibles and not clearly see that the Lord disciplines even his choicest saints for their iniquities. And if that's the case, do we somehow think that we are exempt? We aren't. We shouldn't be shocked when God disciplines us as his people. Hebrews chapter 12. uh, I almost want to preach on that chapter in in its entirety, but I won't. I recommend you to go home and read that chapter when you can make time for that, maybe even today. Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11. The writer of Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he quotes from the Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, the earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's not pleasant, doesn't feel pleasant, uh, but it's good. Discipline, the discipline and chastisement of God, is a mark of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. It doesn't feel like it at times, but it is a mark of God's love for you, his unshakable, unbreakable love for you in Christ. What does the writer of Hebrews also say? That chastisement by God is a mark or sign of your adoption as a child of God. We sometimes read God's providence wrongly. Remember the song we, we, we sang, the song we sang a little bit earlier? God is his own best interpreter. You know, behind a... Dark and frowning providence is a smiling face of God's love. Chastisement is a mark or sign of your adoption as a child of God in Jesus Christ by faith. And so it's for our good that we might share in his holiness. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God loves you so much that he wants you to be holy as he is holy. He wants you to be like him. That's not a negative at all. That is a blessing. That is a positive. And as Hebrews 12.14 tells us, Without holiness, no one will what? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It matters. God loves you too much to not discipline you for your own good and for my good, for our holiness. In fact, you know, read this, read this backwards a little bit. A lack of chastisement, a lack of discipline of the Lord means what? The writer tells us, doesn't he? You're illegitimate and not sons. You know, the prosperity preachers that, uh, that you hear, I hope you don't watch them or read them, but uh, people like Joel Osteen, others that promise you health, wealth, and prosperity, tell them to read Hebrews 12. What are they telling people? Oh, you know, God loves you and he loves you so much, you're never going to suffer. You're never going to lack. What are the people that never suffer and never lack and never undergo God's chastisement? They're not sons. They're preaching people all the way to hell. Maybe they'll have a full wallet. Maybe they won't. It's not the gospel, and it's not the love of God. There's a reason that the Psalms, even the one we just looked at before last Sunday, where the psalmist was, was just perplexed by the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 37, Psalm 73 are both psalms that deal with that. The, the wicked might be prospering in an earthly sense, but they don't know the Lord, and they will not prosper in the end. But if you're a believer in Christ, you will. You will. You can trust the loving discipline of your Heavenly Father that He intends it for your good and will bring good to pass through it. For by it He makes you to share in His holiness. 
and your stripes or wounds, to use the word that, that the ESV says in verse 5. Your stripes may cause you pain right now in the moment, but they are given by the same Heavenly Father who, as Isaiah 53.5 tells us, sent His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be, quote, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, the one who never deserved suffering, who never deserved the fatherly displeasure or chastisement from his father, underwent what Isaiah says is the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes or his wounds, we are healed. You know, if the Lord's hand is heavy upon us for our sins, maybe that's your your situation right now, may we learn more and more to trust in him and see it as coming from the loving hand of our Heavenly Father who intends it for our good, however unpleasant it is for the time being. May we learn to hate our sins more than we hate our sufferings. And may our response be the same as David's was in this psalm. What is this psalm? It's a prayer. It's a prayer. Our response should be as David's is. Prayer, honest prayer, even crying out in prayer. May our sufferings drive us back to our God and Savior, praying and confessing our confidence in Him as David does in the closing verses of the psalm, verses 21 and 22, where he says, Do not forsake me, O Lord. This is where he ends the psalm. It's not happily ever after yet, but he says, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. And then what does he call him? O Lord, my salvation. Nothing of his sufferings made him move from the place of realizing at the end of the day, no matter what he was going through, God was his salvation, even in the midst of all of that that he suffered. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much. We thank you that your word over and over again tells us of your, your covenant love, your steadfast love to us, in Jesus Christ that can never be broken. We thank you that our sins are wiped away. They're, they're, they're forgiven and removed as far from us as the east is from the west if we are your child through faith in Jesus Christ by your grace. We thank you that you have accepted us in Christ. If we're Christians, you've accepted us as righteous in your sight. We are not righteous. We are wicked. But in Christ, you give us the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith that you might accept us as righteous in the sight of a holy God. And we thank you for that, that beautiful truth uh, of your word, that central truth of your gospel uh, that's good news to every sinner's ear who understands it. But we also thank you, though, as, as mysterious as it may be, that, that, that you chastise us uh, for our sins and our iniquities, that you... You care too much about us to leave us go on and on in our sins because you care for us and you want us to be more like you. You want us to share in your holiness. We thank you for that. Thank you that you don't, you, you finish what you start. That he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you that you are a God who finishes the good work that you start in us. If left to ourselves, we would all fall away. If left to ourselves, we would all turn away and wander away lost forever, but you don't allow us to do that because you are a, are a good father, much better than we are ever to our own children. So we ask that you'd help us in our sufferings, 
whatever they may be, whether they be present or future or even past. Give us grace to trust in you, to cry out to you if need be. And we ask that you would help us to accept your discipline, to strengthen the the, the hands that, that hang low and the knees that are weak and help us to make straight paths for our feet. Help us to love and obey your commandments, to love you and obey your commandments because you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us, for our sins. We ask that if anyone here today does not yet know you through faith in Christ, that you might make today the day of their salvation. Open their eyes to trust in Christ for forgiveness of their sins, that they might have life and forgiveness in his name. For we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.